Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Yeah. Good evening, everyone. I am Father Mike. Probably you've seen me around. I, uh, I'm sore that it's my first RCA uh, talk. You know, I would like to do it more, but Tuesday's my day off. You know, and at this particular place at the cathedral, you know, I think the bishop's giving you talks, and probably our chancellor, uh, probably the judicial vicar. I know our pastor, we got other priests and deacons, so there's lots of people to, who are very, very competent. So. But I love to do this, so I love to be here with you. It's going to be on Theology of the Body or on Friendship, which maybe you've discovered in your time in RCIA that the subtitle of every talk when it comes to Christianity is on Friendship, because this is the beginning of the end, which we'll try to see. See, this is why like talks to me are very dramatic, because... Um, I don't write out everything I'm going to say, so we'll kind of see if we're able to get to everything, which actually I'll say we won't because you just, you can't get to everything. Um, But I will see if we can leave some space at the end for some questions. And maybe even like as we move around, if I've totally left you behind, then please stop me, okay? I know a lot of the stuff can be like very new and sound very strange and we're on a path to understand and the more things are heard and repeated, the more we understand. But since uh, we're proposed to start with a prayer, and since uh, we are praying people with bodies, and so we express them as such, uh, let's stand together uh, to pray. And since the Word was made flesh uh, through the flesh of the Blessed Virgin, is why we have such a strong devotion to her, because Christ continues to come in the flesh to us through the Blessed Virgin and through the concrete circumstances in the flesh that he gives us. So we'll pray to her. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please, please be seated. So I just landed about an hour ago, about an hour and 20 minutes ago now from... Uh, from a flight from Jersey. I was up in New York uh, for a conference. But why did I have to fly there? Because if you're going to get together with people in space and time who have bodies who are limited to see them, you have to move through space and time. You see the problem? I can't just be here with my friends all at once. I have to go and, and move. And I need the energy to do that and the attraction to draw me. So uh, what drew me to New York was my friends, uh, an event that was going on there. Yesterday I was at the Met, uh, the Metropolitan uh, Museum. It's the first time I'd ever been there. It's a humongous, humongous museum. And it was all full of things that had bodies. In fact, uh, it was very incarnational. There's paintings, sculptures, and from all time periods. My friend was showing us, we went from the Greek uh, straight to the medieval because he wanted to see this connection and the conversation, the history of art. But we were trying to get from the Greek to the medieval without like disrupting our eyes and getting too distracted. So he was like, don't look, don't look at anything. So we were trying to like walk like this. But everything was very hard to get to and confusing. Um, even the contemporary art was really, was really wonderful. But we could go on in this stuff because the thing is, and, and, and the theology of the body is interesting because it's the thing that's sort of like taken most for granted. Because we all have bodies. And we don't know what it's like to exist outside of a body. So the body is this very central thing. So like marriage, 
uh, which if any of you done like any marriage prep or anything, you know, you get sat down and you say, well, what are the, what are the three promises of marriage? And it's like, uh, I don't know. And you don't know because uh, it's so hard to say what's so obvious. Oftentimes the things that, in fact, are most difficult to name are the things that are the closest to us. Which is why everybody here already knows what marriage is. Nobody has to actually tell you. But to them- them- thematize that stuff, right? To, to speak it into words and to put it out in front of you so you can talk about it and look at it closely, you know, that's a help. And so this is something that, uh, that we can all do. So in a, in a lot of ways, this is what we're trying to do. And we're trying to take something that's so close and not take it for granted. For example, I, uh, after high school, I went to UCF. Central Florida for a year before seminary. And uh, the Psych 101 was such a great class. And we had this extra credit assignment, which was to learn how to juggle. And the point of the learning how to juggle was to help you understand the fight or flight response and the kind of things that you do to yourself when you're trying to learn something new. Like you start to juggle and you drop the ball. Okay, I dropped the ball. And I dropped the ball over and over and over. But every time I dropped the ball, I would curse. And I would curse at myself. And I would say, why did you drop the ball? Which is totally unreasonable, by the way. To think that I should just perfectly begin to try to learn how to juggle and and fail at it. Which is like so strange. The kind of like self-talk that we have from this kind of anxiety. And from an impact of the desires that we have inside of ourselves confronting our limitations. And so trying to, so so I learned how to juggle. I haven't done it in a long time either, but but this is like everything that we do is connected with the body, which also is connected with psychology. I'll try to talk about it a little bit in a moment. The powers that we have as, as a particular kind of body, which is a human body, and then amongst the human bodies, there's male and female bodies, that we have powers of the intellect and powers of the will along with the body, which because of the way God decided to do it, we, we also uh, share within our body everything that a lot of other animals share. You know, they talk about our DNA is like uh, something like over 98% shared with uh, chimpanzees and stuff like this. Which none of that we have to be afraid of because we're clearly on a totally different order than uh, the chimpanzees. But we see that we also have the same kinds of problems as chimpanzees on the level of the body, on the animalistic level. We have instincts, uh, we have uh, certain kinds of Fears, consciousness, you know, instinctual drives, reactions, and all kinds of like possible disorders that are also particular to us as humans struggling to live with the body. And so today the question of the body is like a hyper important question. Because man is made to transcend himself, and because we're given a nature which isn't solid, yeah, because we're also more than our body. So we desire more and we have a capacity that's greater than just the material. There's a kind of space within us that strives to discover who we are. So the dog never strives to become a dog. The dog is always a dog. The ant never questions its relationship with the ant hill and with the queen. It's born and it knows and it moves and it does. And there's no crisis of identity amongst the ants or amongst the bees. But we are the people that do have a crisis of identity and do ask the question of who who I am. And today, you know, the very controversial stuff about transgender 
and uh, LGBT questions are all questions that focus at the bottom about problems of the body and problems of desire. And it's all like that. And you'll see tonight, I'll really try to strive to, the problem of the body and theology of the body is not, first of all, a moral question. It's not talking about doing bad or, or good things. It's a problem of identity and of nature. Who are you? And what does it mean to be a human being? So, um, in fact, there's, you know this show, um, Euphoria, for the show on HBO? It was like super controversial because it's, it's about high schoolers, but it's like all very explicit, like lots of drugs and lots of sex. And there's this one main character who's transgender. And uh, I was recommended to watch this show by a consecrated laywoman who thought it was fascinating because the guy who made the show said that he wanted to have a story of redemption. But he said, well, to have a story of redemption, first you have to see the depths of the darkness that we already find ourselves in. And so the movie like brutally goes into the problems of the culture that we live in and the problems of identity. But then between the first and the second season, there's these two episodes with the two main characters who, with the one who's a drug addict, it's just an hour-long conversation with her sponsor. And talking about drugs and why she needs that and what it kind of fulfills and problems of her relationship with God, which are intrinsically wrapped up in the question of desire and need and addiction. And then there's the episode with the transgender woman who talks about how much she desired to be a woman because she desired to be desired by men. And this is what she wanted. But then she realized that all of her desiring to uh, look like a beautiful woman that was able to be a, a desirable, beautiful woman was even another limit that she was putting on herself that was, that was limited by the way that other men looked at her. So then she started talking about how she desires even to transcend that and to transcend in, in, a, in something that was even, even, even greater. So transcending from her gender, she wanted to transcend even her, her, her humanity into another plane. But of course, at this point, what are we talking about? Right? Because what would it mean to, to transcend even that? Because here, you can't ever transcend the body itself. But since we discover this need inside ourselves to transcend, this is something that's given. And as given is something good. So we all desire, because in fact, well, this is, and we'll see, we're, made, we're not made for this world. So when we, when, we, when we look at our desires, our desires always point us beyond the material world to transcend. And that's where we can make so many mistakes. Um, I wasn't going to talk about this, but you know, David Cronenberg, uh, body horror. I shouldn't talk about it. <laughs> he's, a, he's a film director, Canadian. I've never actually seen any of his films, but I used to see the covers of the films of Blockbuster when I was a kid, you know, when that was a thing. We're all like the same age, right? I don't remember Blockbuster. The Fly, remember The Fly? I like wanted to watch it but resisted because I'm so sensitive I know I'll be haunted by the images and all the reviews I read of people who like to watch horror they say this particular movie is even more horrific and terrifying so I'm like if it's terrifying for people who aren't terrified by horror films I think I'll have nightmares but today I was reading this this other thing connected with it and it was connected with his desire to transcend to be something else and he suffers through this, trans, you know, through transcending his humanity because he turns into a fly. But there's this quote he has from the film that anybody would do anything to become something else, to become somebody else. 
And this is a particular moment in history where we find the, the alienation that we feel and experience in this, in this particular culture, I think is different from many other generations. Without going into the whole, like, you know, every generation is the worst generation sort of thing. I don't believe in that. But we do live in a particular time where there's so much confusion that, you know, like how many people wish that they were like uh, royalty, you know? I'm not talking about little kids uh, with like Disney dreams. But it's like, oh man, or if I could be famous, or I could be this person. Which I love to read the stories of those people because they're all just as miserable as you or me. They just do their miserable thing surrounded by wonderful things. <laughs> Which it's like, when I give up my simple life for all these wonderful things, but then the kind of alienation that you experience as a famous person, which is a whole other kind of thing, or as an extremely rich person and questions of trust and friendship and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I'm trying to like position like our whole thing within this, uh, this problem of the, the culture we live in. But let's say something like this. To ask the question is already the beginning of salvation. To ask the question of salvation is already the beginning of salvation. Since we can't save ourselves. So as humans, what's the greatest thing a human could do? Is to ask the question of salvation. This is why the greatest human work there is, is religion. And this is why in this sense, all religions are true. In this sense, all religions are true. Because the truest thing that we can do as humans is to cry out to God for salvation. To ask the question of salvation. We cannot cause salvation to come. It's not that if you just prayed enough, then you could be saved. It wouldn't be that if you were just a disciplined, well-read, good person, then all of a sudden you could create the relationship with Christ. This is why the relationship with Christ always comes unexpectedly from the outside and gratuitously. Never because you're a good person. That's why today I just hate everybody. And when I, when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Oh, I'm a good person. Yeah, of course you're a good person. You know, because God made you. And God made you good. Apart from the fact that everybody says this. So that whatever you do in your life that's evil or bad, you will rationalize yourself as a good person. You say, well, at least I'm not as bad as this person. So I'm better than that person. You know, at least I'm not this. So anyway, the problem of, the problem of salvation is not a problem of you being good or praying or anything like that. But to ask the question itself becomes fundamentally the most important thing. And what's the question we're asking? The question of salvation, the question of who am I? Who am I? Why was I born? Where did I come from? And it's not enough to say, well, I came from my parents. Because that doesn't actually explain it. Because tell me about the day you were born. You don't remember. You were there. But you don't remember. So we come into this world already in darkness. And it takes years to begin to, to develop the body to the point that the spirit can manifest itself in consciousness and then in self-consciousness and in language. So that we, you know, which is like when I was talking about the question of uh, moral certainty, which is strictly connected with the question of faith. I can have real knowledge if I trust you enough to believe what you have to say to me. So how do I come to trust you? So I'm telling these because I, I used to teach middle school religion. So with the kids, I said, um, how do you know that your parents are your parents? And did you hear about that one lady, that one nurse, and uh, I think it was in one of the countries in Africa, 
Like on her deathbed, she said that she like switched out 5,000 babies when she was working in the nursery. Which people, people were like, we don't think you actually did that because you worked for this many years and 5,000 is a lot. You have doing like multiple times a day. So we think she's even exaggerating. But it's like, well, this is a possibility. So I tell the kids, how do you know your parents are really your parents? Some of them started to cry. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Some of them did. At Carline, at the end of the day, they came to me like, how, are you, how do I know? Are you really my mom? And then you push the kids and it's like, well, I know my, I know my parents are my parents because they love me. And that's really the right answer. Because even if you were adopted and you weren't told you were adopted, the people who are your true parents are the people who give them their lives to you. So in this way, you can say, well, they take care of me, they feed me, they put me in bed, they play with me, they listen to me, so they love me, so they're my parents. And then you can have that, that hard, hard rock certainty at, at this point. But then the question of, uh, of uh, certainty, why did I bring up that question? Oh, yeah, who am I? And that we come into this world and that everybody has this question. And then in philosophy, when I started studying philosophy in seminary, it was all like this. It was, we, we were told, this one question sums up every question you can ask. Absolutely. Who am I? Because in that question is contained everything. Since humanity is the peak of the cosmos, as, as we'll go into, humanity is that level of nature where nature itself, where the cosmos itself becomes aware of itself. And so we share the same stuff as, uh, as, the tree, as the chimpanzees, but also as the trees, as water, as the clouds, as the stars. All of this uh, we share in, in the same kind of matter, you know, organized differently. But we become that level where the cosmos can look back on itself and say, who am I? Why am I here? Where did I come from? And then this question, the great thing with this question, ends up giving birth to another question that's already within it, which is, who are you? Because then who are you that have made me? So the question who I am already has within it a question of who are you? And who are you God? Or the absolute? Or the creator? Or some, some divine principle that's at the origin of things? It's wonderful to follow physics today because, you know, there's the, there's the, great, uh, the great problem between, you know, Einstein's general theory of relativity that deals with the big stuff connected with quantum mechanics, which deals with a very, very little stuff. And they have not found a way to show how like these things can work together. Because it seems that reality at the very, very tiny level just acts in a way that's totally different than the big stuff. But then, you know, you ask, you know, what's everything made of? And it's like, well, atoms, you know. The Greeks were saying that, you know, 500 years before Christ, everything's, everything is atoms. But you, well, you go deeper and you go deeper and then, and then quarks and then blues and greens. And all this stuff. But, you know, you can keep on going deeper to try to get to what's at the bottom of everything. Which at the bottom you say, there is another. There is another. And everything about what it is to be human is about a relationship with another. Such that we can never answer the question of who I am outside of a relationship with somebody else. That helps me, that helps me say, who am I and who are you? This is so true. You see that we speak a language. And the very fact that we speak a language shows that we were given that language. So, you know, the great problem of today, the pandemic of uh, loneliness. But even every time you speak a word, you're expressing a relationship in a community, in a culture, in a history. Always, it's totally unavoidable. You cannot be human without a language. And so we'll try to get into that too. 
So uh, we want to sew, okay, what is theology of the body? If I try to address this earlier. Theology of the body looks at what it means to have a body in connection with meeting Christ. Okay? So we meet Christ, and Christ tells us, shows us something about what it means to be human, what it means to have a body. So a theology is that. Because there's lots that we can know just with human reason. But then God reveals himself and shows us the truth about reality, and then so we know even more. So, what is, so then we say, well, what does it mean to have a body in the, light, in the light of the fact that God himself became man, that God himself took on a body? So that's why we're doing uh, uh, this talk and why it's meaningful for us and why we can do this sort of, uh, sort of high-level discipline. Okay, uh, some beginning considerations, though. Uh, to avoid like the first main, main problem is a reduction to materialism. So uh, I think there's the, the exhibit called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. You know this? Where they show human beings without their skin. And it's just their muscles. And they're doing like mundane activities like throwing a baseball or dancing. I don't know who came up with the idea for these exhibits. I think they're the creepiest thing uh, to show these. Like who were these people? Did they know they were going to be... Um, you know, bowling in a museum without their flesh suit on, you know, it's totally disconcerting. But this is the common opinion about the body today. It's all just material. We can, do, we can reduce everything to just your flesh. And, uh, and we want to try to avoid this, this sort of reduction. Do you, know, do you, do you remember about the, the Rumbas, the scientists who were training chimpanzees, trying to teach them language? to get them to break through the language barrier. And they published a paper saying they did it. They say, look at, look at our chimpanzees. They, they want a banana, they press the button that says banana, you know? And they like do like this. And then B.F. Skinner, who is a behaviorist psychologist who doesn't believe in anything. So I love to talk about Skinner because I think it's helpful. So Skinner's like materialist. So he's like, oh, you think you think you did this with the room uh, with uh, with your chimpanzees? I'm gonna go even further and do it with pigeons. And so there's these famous pigeon experiments you can look up on YouTube, where they use all these sorts of techniques to train the pigeons to communicate. So there's this famous Jack and Jill one where there's Jack. You know, they starve the pigeons and then they put them in cages and they reward them by giving them food if they do what they want. So through this sort of like rewarding and all these kinds of uh, conditionings, they got Jack to, um, you know, peck a button that said what color. And then in the other cage, Jill had a color show up behind a curtain. So she sticks her head behind the curtain, sees a random color, goes out and pecks that color, and then she gets fed. And then Jack pokes, thank you, and then he gets fed. And then they do it again and again and again. So it's like, well, look, they have language too, and they're pigeons. Um, but this is not language. <laughs> this is not language. This is just high-level training, okay? Which is why, like, lots of people confuse, um, like, animals and other low-level species that they uh, that they also have these human qualities. Which, when we talk about them, we talk about them using human words, but really they're analogies. So now I'm about to say the most controversial thing I'll say tonight. If you want to ask a question after this, okay, your dogs or cats, they don't love you. <laughs> they don't love you. 
Not in the sense that we mean when a human says to another human, I love you. Okay? In another sense, we can say your dog does love you. With its instinct. It's also the way, like, everything in reality, if you want, loves, desires to go someplace. If you want, even the rocks or the inanimate things. Right? What does a rock desire? Or what does this marker desire? It desires above all to rest. And so if there's, nothing, if there's no other power placed upon it, it will immediately go to the place where it can rest the fastest. Oh, it's still kind of shaking here. Oh, but now it's happy. You see? Now it's happy. It's resting. It's fulfilled the thing. Everything in reality is like this. So only in that sense can you say your dog loves you. Okay? This, when I taught middle school... Three years of teaching middle school, this was the only thing, the only thing I could not convince my kids of, that their dogs didn't know and love them. One kid said, you know, I know my dog loves me because when I come home from school, he jumps on me, pushes me to the floor, and licks my face. It's like, girl, if you think that that's what love is, then you've got bigger problems. But you get it. And I think, you know, because when we experience that affection, even from dogs, it's a sign of God's affection for us. So even we do use dogs, not cats though, for therapy. <laughs> you couldn't use a cat for therapy. The person would think they're even worse than they think about themselves. <laughs> so, uh, so we're definitely more of that. Um, so here's, here's a hardcore rule that we can use to fight materialism. You are not the sum of your parts. Okay? We can't just take everything that's in your body and look at all the chemical makeup and say, that's you. You are, not, you are greater than the sum of your parts. Everything in reality is also in a way, but we in a particularly different way. Since in, 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 our, in our human bodies, we find two distinct components. One which is made up of what is divisible, which is that, that measurable, that body, that chemical stuff. I mean, I remember in high school, Catholic high school, you find this stuff everywhere because it's in the culture. In a textbook, it divided up all the chemicals in our body and said how much those chemicals would cost to sell. And so it said at the, at the bottom, you're worth like 1050, or maybe it was less. I was like, wow, I feel like dying. This is terrible. But, but so we're not the sum of our parts. So we find within ourselves things that we can't be reduced to material. Uh, for example, why do we wear clothes, right? It's like, uh, why are we uh, ashamed to, to be naked in front of people? Because our clothes, it's like, look up here. Look at my face. Don't reduce myself to my body. Because if we were to just be naked, the temptation would be to look and say, oh, that's, just, that's, that's all you are. Everything I see is what you are. But we put on clothes to say, no, I'm more than my body. So don't, don't see my body. This is where you get what ends up sounding like high-level mysticism, but it's not. It really is just very ordinary kind of mysticism that we wear clothes for that reason. It's just don't reduce me to what you see. I am more than what you see. And we find it violent when someone treats us just as a body or just what you can see. So we put on clothes as a way of protecting ourselves, trying to keep people from, from reducing ourselves. So one of the... Uh, indivisible, immaterial things we find inside ourselves is desire. Okay. Now desire, then I'm making a distinction between desire and instinct. Okay? Because 
all, all creatures instinctually move out. You know, there's hunger and you go for food. You're thirsty. We have all that, but we also have desire for what? For the good. And the good itself is not something that you could reduce just to the material. And this is so true that the experience of humans in front of beautiful things is not an experience of satisfaction. It's not an experience of, of, of satiety. It's not that after listening to a, a beautiful music, I say, oh, finally, that's it. The experience is the opposite. I want more. I want more. I cry in front of what's beautiful. I, I experience my heart being wounded in front of what's great and wonderful and beautiful. Great, beautiful mountains, uh, sunsets. Although I shouldn't use that example because I've personally never been moved by sunset. Because my heart is uh, a heart of rock. And God struggles constantly to pierce it, to open it. But beautiful people that we're in front of, they say, this person makes me want to die. They're so beautiful. They're so good. And so we see the opposite of what normally when I'm hungry and I eat, I'm just satisfied. It's very simple. I'm thirsty. I drink. I don't want anymore. But when it comes to what's good, I always want more. And so I'm pushed like this to go in more. So the idea of goodness is not something that anybody can tear out of you. And it's not something that can be reduced to, to, to the material, divisible in your body. Ideas, judgments, judgments where we bring two ideas together. We say this thing is that thing. It's irreducible. There's nobody else in creation that we know of that makes judgments like this. To even say that this is good, that this is a table. This will also come out later. Later in the talk, uh, decisions, even as opposed to acts, even though a decision is a kind of act, you make a decision, it's, it's irreducible. There's something inside of us that cannot be reduced. Yeah. And this is connected, even idea, judgment, and decision are connected with our reason, which in the world we live in, reason is another thing that's reduced, which is why all the conflicts between faith and reason can be simply, simply avoided by going back and saying, well, what is your definition of reason? Because normally for people in our culture, reason means your ability to control and to measure, to calculate. Here's where we get to all these things of like AI. It's the most recent kind of big question. But before it was computers, right? Oh, computers, someday they'll be smarter than us. If reason can be reduced to calculation, the computers have been smarter than us for decades. Decades. It's not hard to get a computer to calculate faster than a person, right? But if reason is that, then yeah, computers have already overcome us way, way a long time ago. But you guys know the, you guys know the show Mad Men? Uh, AMC? AMC? Mad Men. Brilliant. Brilliant. Wonderful. Watched it a couple times. Mad Men is all about what it is to be human. It's about desire and satisfaction. And here's this thing that Don Draper, who's perpetually dissatisfied, like, because he's human, uh, nothing's ever enough. But they, they, they go and install a computer, like one of the new IBMs, into his office. And this guy's like, yeah, these computers can count more stars in a minute than a, than a person can in his lifetime. And Don, who's not, normally not so sharp, or at least this deep, not always, he says, what man, gazing up into a, a, a bright starry sky, looks up at the stars and, and counts them. <laughs> Who does that? I don't look up and see the beautiful sky and start like trying to count them. 
What is, what is the human reaction? Wow. It's awe. It's wonder. And this is a, this is a deeply, deeply unique human thing and is an expression of reason. So reason is not just calculation. That's part of it. Reason is openness to reality. Openness to all of reality. And the desire to go out and grasp everything in reality. And to grasp it and get to it in any way possible. In that sense, we talk about the truth and reason as multivalent. There's multiple paths to the truth. There's multiple kinds of truth. This is why I particularly brought up this question about how you can know who your parents are. You cannot know who your parents are based upon a mathematical formula. It wouldn't work. You would never arrive at certainty. But you would never, you would never arrive at a certainty of a mathematical formula by trusting. No, that's not true. You can learn something about math by trusting somebody, but you wouldn't need to. Right? Math, can, math can prove itself through abstract principles and formulas. So it has its own kind of discipline, right? You know what, you know what the makeup of, of water is by looking at it uh, through chemistry, right? Reason works in the world in all these different ways to go out and know everything it can. Faith happens to be the easiest way to know reality uh, using reason. Because with faith, I don't have to do all the work that everybody before did. I just have to trust you. And if I can trust you, then I can believe what you say and therefore know reality. This is why the worst thing in society is to not trust. Because if you don't trust, you know less. And the less you know, the more afraid you are. The more afraid you are, the more, the more uh, easier it is to manipulate you by the powers that be. Some of you might have heard this story. I preach about this sometimes. But I was in my first year as a priest. And this fellow walked into my office. And he sat down. I see he's kind of nervous. So I'm like, what's the problem? He said, well, at my work, uh, the people are out to get me. My colleagues are out to get me. I said, okay, I'm getting, you know, this, this impression. But I want the facts. Right? I want the facts. In the church, we're all about the facts. Tell me the facts. What happened that makes you think that these people are out to get you? He couldn't give me any facts. So I decided to set himself, well, he has a psychological problem. And to test this, I had a bag of Werther's Originals, those nice caramels. I used to really like them when I was younger. I don't eat them anymore in case you're thinking of um, gifting me with some because somebody did that. Now I have all these Werther's Originals in my office. So I gave him one of those Originals and I, and I took one and I opened it up and ate it. But I was wondering if he would eat it because if he ate it, it would show he trusted me. But I figured if he doesn't know how to trust his colleagues, he probably wants to trust me. So now he's holding it in his hands even more nervously. And then I ask him, how do you know that I'm a priest? He says, well, you got the collar on. I said, oh, this that I bought online that anybody can buy online. In fact, I went to a place where they, uh, Gamarellis were, at least they used to make the, the outfit for the Pope. And I was like, uh, what can I buy? He's like, you can buy anything you want. I'm like you could buy a papal outfit <laughs> if you wanted. In fact, you remember there was that one guy, I think it was the last conclave. He tried to sneak into the conclave. Uh, that elected Pope Francis. He like bought all the cardinal outfit and just walked up and got in line. And um, there was something off about his outfit that betrayed him. I was like, you can buy these shirts anywhere. And he says, oh, but you have all these pictures of you as a priest. I said, well, you never heard of Photoshop? 
So I'm trying to learn it. He says, yeah, but you're in this office. Man, I snuck in here, bro. I snuck in here. And then I said, no, 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 of course. You know, he was right. He was, he was more right than he knew. Why? Because his reason had been working even without him knowing. Because he had multiple signs all at once that all pointed to the same thing, which is that I'm a priest. Right? I have the clothes. I have the pictures. I'm in the office. It would be very unlikely that I sneak in. Right? So it's not just one thing that proves it. But reason immediately works like this. Can I trust this person? Who is this person? And you know what it's like. We, we see somebody on the street and immediately we know if we can trust them or not. Sometimes we can be wrong. You know, like if you go out to buy a car, which I'm sure you have. The experience of shopping for a car is terrifying. And if anybody here works for a dealership, um, you know that you cannot be trusted. <laughs> and, it's not, and it's not a moral question. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's just what you want from me is my money. And when what you want from me is my money, I know I can't trust you. And that's just, that's just right. But that's why they try to do all kinds of things to try to win over your trust. And they wear really nice suits with big cufflinks. And they have like this John Colognes. And uh, one guy, I was pretty sure he was like doing lines of coke in his office before he came out. Because I was like, bro, like, I want to test out the Corolla. I don't want to like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I was, I was sure I didn't want to, I mean, but he, but, he, but he puts it on like this, right? So our reason is made like this. So because of that, it does all these things. So it's hard to, it's hard to give an exhaustive thing about reason. But reason is a spiritual thing. It's an immaterial thing. It's not a material thing. And when you talk about people who want to, who want to reduce rationality just to the bodily, they'll talk about what happens between the synapses and the brain. You can never, you can never give birth to an idea from flesh. An idea is not a fleshly thing. And in our, in our Catholic history, we've, we've had lots of times going through what exactly is happening, which is very complex because, of course, it is a complex thing. Uh, we have different theories. They're, they're not all important. But in a way, we can simply say like this. When you know something, you become that thing immaterially. That's what it means to know something. To know someone, you become it immaterially. So you abstract it, it becomes an idea within you, you become it immaterially. If it, weren't, if, it, if it were materially to know something, then you know, to know a rock would be to be petrified, right? Literally. You couldn't become the rock, but you become the rock immaterial. So the form of the rock becomes a part of you. And this is what we call, this is what we call knowledge. Then once you have that knowledge, you can relate that knowledge with other knowledge, which we talk about judgment, reasoning, Right, coming from one idea and leaping to the next. Normally when we say somebody's smart, we're talking about that part of intelligence where you learn one thing and you quickly can jump to the other things. When we talk about genius, we talk about someone who can know something very small and immediately leap to something new. But that's what we're talking about when we talk about reason. It's an immaterial thing. Um, okay, I had a corollary here which was about... Uh, how dogs and cats are essentially different things, which I already covered, so that's good. Uh, how are we at this point? We're on the train together, we're going to Theology of the Body Town. Okay. <laughs> really, we're going to Friendship Town, that's where we want to end. Uh, okay, so the importance of the body, oh look, I actually have the, you know where we're going. 
Uh, so Genesis and the body. So what do we learn from Genesis? Remember, the story of Genesis is not a historical story. It was not written the way we would write about a truth claim. Today, truth claims are all like, well, well how do you know what happened? Who was there? And like, tell me exactly as you saw it, what happened. And even as a witness, it would be doubted, right? So it's like the best way to know something that happened would be to like have it on video. This is not the idea of truth in ancient cultures or even medieval cultures, not until modern times where we exalt doubt and where we reduce reason to rationality do we have this problem of truth claims and stories. The story of Genesis is not a historical story. It's more a poem or a myth that expresses true things to us. Okay? This is so true. In Genesis, there's two creation stories. You know this. You can go right back to the beginning and see this. So there, there, there are stories that convey to us what is most important. What is most important? You guys, I, I, I'm sure, have studied it. I don't want to read the Bible because I don't like that. And the point is to get like right back to like what are the most important truths that come to us? Does anybody want to throw one out? We got like at least five. God made this on this day, this on this day. And, and God said after every day that he made stuff, which why do they put it in, in seven days? Why do they? Because reality is ordered. That's the truth that we're meant to know from that. Uh, why does God rest on the seventh? Because gosh darn it, he was so tired. <laughs> it's like, no, he rests on the seventh day to tell you to rest on the seventh day. Because we are meant to imitate God and we can't reduce our lives to work. So rest. But everything is good. God repeats this over and over and over. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And then God makes man and it's very good. What's the one thing that's said in Genesis that's not good? The one thing that's not good? That man be alone. Okay. From the teacher. <laughs> the one thing in Genesis that says it's not good that man be alone. Which is wonderful, which is where we're going to end up at friendship. Because man by himself is not himself. Absolutely speaking. You cannot exist by yourself. So, uh, so there's that. God also gives man some responsibilities. He says, well, till the soil. So work. Okay. And uh, all right, actually, I'm going to slow down a little bit and try to like, go through these. I was going to name them all. It's, it's work, be fruitful. Um, to not be alone. We also learn in Genesis that man is the pinnacle of creation. Okay. He's the last one that you made. He's the pinnacle. First, first of all, everything's good. Okay. It's the first overwhelming truth that we receive from Genesis. This has legs, guys. This has legs. And we have to be very careful in our culture, which is affected not only from nihilism on one side, but Protestantism on the other side. And no one's going to affirm the goodness of reality more than we are in the Catholic Church. Nobody. So when we look specifically at you as a person, you are good. And this is, this is the judgment. That's why when people who tell me that they say I'm good, what they mean is I do good things. But there's something deeper than that. You are good because you exist. This is the hardcore judgment about you. So that there's nothing you could even do that would change God's judgment about you in that sense. Even this is so hardcore that we say the devil is good. Because he exists. 
And God does not make bad things. So everything in reality is good in as much as it exists. Then after that, you can distort and have all these problems of distortion. And we suffer from, from the fall and original sin. But hardcore, essentially, you are good. Which also means your desires are good. Your desires are good. Your reasons are good. Your, your reason is good. You cannot help, in, in, even in this sense, you cannot help but to love God. You can't help it. The fact that you're here, that you take a breath, that you open your eyes, that you take a step, is an expression of your love for God. The rock that falls and seeks to rest, our nature is made to love God. So everything that we do, the big problem is we're, we're mostly unaware of that because we remain on the surface level of things. And we don't make the judgment to discover that the thing that I love in the thing that I love is actually God. And what I love and everything that I do love is God. This is absolutely overwhelming. That's why even the atheists, even the people that, that, that rebel against God, cannot help but to affirm God in the rebellion. Because they're affirming God the freedom that they were given by God. So everything is this positive affirmation. If it weren't so, you could all... Also like this, so because the, the Protestants on the Calvinist side, they wanted to say that man essentially is distorted. That because of the fall, this is the, the total depravity doctrine, I think it's normally called. Because of the fall, you are essentially bad in your desires. So your desires, your reason cannot be trusted. But if that, and then so that's why you have to have absolute faith, right? Sola fide. But that kind of faith is a faith that's not connected to reason. It's just a blind trust. But in the Catholic Church, we say if faith doesn't have reasons, then it's not faith. It's something, but it's not faith. If, it, if it's going to be faith, it also has to be reasonable. There's nothing blind. There's nothing blind in our, in our religion. God didn't want it to be like that. Because why else would he give us our reason? Why else would he give us our desires? So he gives us them to find him, to seek him out, to make these judgments. To say, okay, you know what? This corresponds to my humanity and this thing doesn't. So I'm going to do what corresponds to my humanity. You know what? This thing's better than this thing. I like this sandwich better than this sandwich. Therefore, I want to have this sandwich. And once you go through the line of sandwiches, and the sandwiches get better and better and better, and then you get to the point where there must be some great, better sandwich out there that will really satisfy me. Or better, once you discover that no sandwich will satisfy you, then you begin to ask the question, well, what really will satisfy me? What's really the greatest good? And so God gives us this reality and makes this way and gives us these powers precisely to find him. This is why it's so essential that we affirm the goodness, the goodness of you. Now, you can make a mistake. You could desire something and perceive it's good and it not be good in, in, a, in a relationship to other things. Right? Some things are good only in a certain context. And so you can make mistakes, and that's where we, we can begin to talk about sin, and sin is missing the mark, or, you know, screwing up, making a wrong judgment. I thought it was good, I perceived it was good, but now I see how it's not, because also we live in shadows, because we don't see everything perfectly. So we're on that path, so it's okay. But absolutely, you are good. Okay, man is the pinnacle of creation because we have everything within ourselves. Because within ourselves, we do have the material and we have the immaterial. We combine everything in creation. Not even the angels have that. Because the angels don't have bodies. So they don't even have what we have. 
So we have both. We have everything in the cosmos together. This is why we're the pinnacle. Now, you've probably noticed you've been reading scriptures. There's all this language about, you know, sun and moon, bless the Lord. You know, stars of heaven, bless the Lord. Uh, Running water, bless the Lord. It's like, how can inanimate things bless the Lord? How can they? Through us. Through our awareness. Just like we said, the connection between us and all the cosmos, that we're the level of the cosmos that become self-aware. So when we see something beautiful and we're able to use our awareness to make a judgment that this thing, this palm tree glorifies God, now the palm tree glorifies God in our awareness of it. Which then this can connect us to the work. Work is one of the most essential things here we have in the story of Genesis. It's so wonderful and it's mostly missed. Because normally work is just seen as this sort of capitalistic way where you just have to go out and make money, right? And so like the ideal of human life is to like make as much money as soon as possible to retire as soon as possible. Only, I don't know if any of you are retired. My experience of meeting retired people in church is that basically they're miserable. And they're like, I wish I could just go back to work. And I have nothing to do. And I read, I read <laughs> this is not strictly connected. It's a little bit right? you know? But you know this guy who's like, he retired, like, I don't know, postal man or something. And then he's like, I'm bored. And he's like, he's with his wife, honey, I'm bored. And he's like, well, she's like, well, why don't you try playing pickleball? I was like, oh, pickleball. I'm like, that's a popular thing. You know, they just made like two dozen new pickleball courts right here for a lot of like, They used to play in the hockey rinks. I would look at just like a row of people on the bot- at the back of the, the rinks waiting to play. Huh? Bunch of pickles. Bunch of pickles, yeah. <laughs> Gonna, yeah, try not to talk about that, uh, that name. Yeah, a bunch of pickles. Um, so he goes to plays pickleball and then like makes all these new friends playing pickleball and then leaves his wife for somebody he met playing pickleball. You know, this whole like ridiculous, it's like, because when you're listless, you don't have anything to do. You're, you're bored, you know, like, go out and do anything. So anyway, I'm not saying that's going to happen. That's why it just, it is ridiculous. But we are made to work in an essential way. What does God, what's the first work that God has Adam do? Name the creatures. He has Adam do that. God doesn't name them. So God makes everything, makes it good, it's ordered. But it's, but it's ordered, first of all, in man's awareness of it by making a judgment about it. This is an apple. This is a cantaloupe. This is a deer. We go around naming things. This is the most essential human work, naming. Which is why you go to the Metropolitan Museum, and what do you have in there? A bunch of people naming stuff, right? Naming through artwork. They're trying to name. They're trying to imitate reality in a way that it can become more clear. They're trying to pull back the veil to help reveal reality to us. And by doing so, to reveal yourself to yourself. That's why those museums are such places of self-encounter. Because they're an encounter of somebody who's naming something. And then a dialogue begins between you and the namer. I was with then some friends and we got to the Renaissance part and there was a, an Il Greco of uh, St. John and the Revelation. And it's St. John there like this. And there's this, these veils in different colors and there's these seven people naked and weird and there's some angels. And we, we looked at it close up and then we backed up to look at it and we spent half an hour just talking about it amongst ourselves and what was going on and what we thought. 
And then after that, we went to this other painting that I looked at, you know, I walked past and looked at it. It was like, I thought like literally nothing about it. And it was a Pieta image with the cross and Mary and Jesus, brutal, and Mary Magdalene and John. And then we stayed there for not that much time, but uh, not as much as uh, in front of the El Greco. But I was amazed at what we got out of that art by dialoguing with the artist and amongst ourselves. And my friends helped to point out to me stuff that I never would have seen by myself. So here's dialogue, here's relationship, here's discovering. It's all this naming. Even the building that we were in, in the Metropolitan, uh, the front of it had a, had a Greek style. There were the stairs, the base, the columns, the roof, the symbols that were uh, praising humanity in the, in the humanistic tradition and rationalistic tradition, but taking something that the Greeks had come up with. So in dialogue with the way they named reality by the way they made their buildings and what they wanted to say by the way they made their buildings. Because everything means something. Because when there's an intentionality behind something, it comes out. So you cannot help but speak about reality in some way that you mean it. Even the way these tables are set up. I, uh, I'm not going to try to say what that means and who thought about it. Probably they were just like this. <laughs> um, but anyway, everything, everything in reality is like that. So this is the big work that... Uh, that God gives to Adam and that we continue to do and that is, is really the most important work. It's the work we're doing right now, trying to name things. Well, what is the theology of the body? Who am I? Who is God? Why has he called me here to this process? Yeah. And in the liturgy even, that all religions have liturgy because you have to have some way of, of being in a relationship in a formal ritualistic way with the divine. So we call, we call our liturgy the divine liturgy. Right? It's God's work. Liturgy means work. And so it's the work of God that he initiated, which is why lots of people, maybe not so much today, but sometimes it's controversial, like bread and wine. Well, what if you don't eat bread normally? What if you're in, uh, in, the, in like China and use rice? And some people were proposing that, you know, to use rice instead of wheat. And we said no. Why? Because we don't decide how to worship God. We don't, we're not making this up. So we're imitating something that happened historically because Jesus at the Last Supper used bread and wine. And so we're stuck with this. Then within a form, because of course the, the church has the authority to do certain things, but the church doesn't have the authority to do everything. You know, I remember I used to think that um, the Pope had absolute power, you know, as a, as a monarch and in the church and to speak infallibly and all that. And then Pope Benedict became Pope, and he said the Pope isn't, doesn't have absolute power. He can't do anything he wants because he has to be faithful to tradition. He has to be faithful with what God has given us, which is why the church is called to take care of something that God has revealed to us and to take care of that relationship, which is why we don't make, us, make stuff up, which is why in the church we need to be very comfortable to say that we don't know everything. Because we don't. We know the most important things. But we can't answer everything. Even when it comes to the questions of science, and for example, like the way evolution is so controversial, um, the church says, hey, if you want to believe in evolution, wonderful. If you don't, that's also equally fine, because we don't really care. Um, because when it comes to the essential things of, of life and humanity, it's like, you know, old Copernicus, who was Catholic, right? 
and even maybe a priest, uh, the Copernican Revolution, it's like, oh, we are actually going around the sun, not vice versa. It's like, it's great to know that, right? You guys probably agree. It's great to know we're going around the sun. But who actually cares? Actually, nobody. Actually, there's a tiny group of people who care. They're like the astrophysicists. Basically, anybody else looks like, looks like the sun's going around us. <laughs> That's fine by me. You know? It's like, and now they're like, we discovered there's all these other like, galaxies. And it's like, That's fine. It's fine. I just, when I, uh, when I look at the needs of my heart, uh, it doesn't really matter. And knowing those things won't change the way I get up uh, out of bed in the morning. Um, oh, but I was going to say something even better than that. <laughs> um, Copernicus and knowing things and naming things. Well, maybe we should take another step forward. So this is work. Oh, the liturgy and the liturgy. Oh, yeah. It is, this is also, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you've been told this, but since I'll, I'll say it again, the Pope doesn't have absolute power, right? Neither does God. Neither does God. We like to go around and like say Greek things, you know, the things that the old Greeks used to say. Well, God is all powerful. It's omnipotent. And it's like all everything. So anything that you know, well, God's all of it. God can't do everything. Let's let's bring up an example. And you know this is a classic one. Can God make a rock so big that he himself can't lift it? You know this. No one's tried to trick you. Um, because it seems like, well, it's, yeah, because if God can make, he's all powerful, so he can make such a big rock, but could he not? God could never do that. Why? Because he would be contradicting himself. And inside God, there's no contradiction. So he could do not, so God cannot go against himself. Because God himself has a nature, and he can't go against that nature. That's why God is all forgiving. God is love and merciful. So there's never a time when he cannot be that. Which is why when we talk about like, well, you know, well, can God forgive me from this? Yes. And he will and always does. When is the only time that God does not forgive? When you won't accept his forgiveness. Because as a lover, he will not force himself upon you. This is also why, I hope we can get to it. This is why he makes stuff like this. and doesn't make things perfectly, evidently obvious. Like he's not going to hit you over the head with a sign. Because he wants to respect your freedom. And he wants to draw you in. And allow you to discover him. And, and allow you to make the judgment about who he is and what he means for you. That's why he won't do that. But God can't do everything. And, and not everybody believes that. So like Muslim tradition, for example, their theology is that God is so transcendent, so beyond ourselves, that we can never truly know his nature. So for them, God can do anything. So, for example, God could ask you to do something that's evil. And because he asks you, it becomes good. This is like Pope Benedict's uh, Regensburg Address. Remember, that was very controversial when it came out. Because he was talking about the, the different ways of looking at God, which then are different ways of looking at, at the human, right? Because when you, when you answer something about God, you also answer something about being human. Just like you answer something about being human, then you say something about God. And for us... Our nature and our reason and our desire corresponds with God so that we can know him truly. But for them, it doesn't. So God could make, things, uh, make evil things good if he wanted. We say, no, God could never ask you to do something evil. Never, never, never in the world. Never. God can take evil things that happen 
and bring good things from them. This is the celebration, the greatest of which is on Good Friday uh, and uh, in Easter, that he makes, he makes the actual death of God to bring the greatest good into the world. But that's never, that never means that the death of God, the death of God was something that was good. Uh, evil is never good in that way. Okay, so the next thing, fruitfulness. Okay, so here's when we come to why did God make us as male and female? So that you would need others. So that you would need to enter relationship with others. So that you could not be an autonomous whole. So maybe, maybe some of you have seen the movie um, Deus Ex Machina. Or maybe it's just Ex Machina. Ex Machina. Where this guy is making like AI robots. And he makes the AI robot a woman. And so the other guy there is like, well, why make it a woman? Why not just make it a box? Like all it's going to do is think. And he said, no, because if it's just a box, it won't go out into the world. It'll have no reason to enter into reality. So you have to give it a sex. Remember, sex comes of a word that means uh, split, cut off, divided. So that in humanity, humanity is all divided between men and women. And because of that, there's a need to go out of ourselves and to enter into reality. If you had no sex or no sexual desire, you would not leave your room. Yeah? Uh, maybe, you know, to like find some food and, you know, and go back to your room. What are those people called in Japan that are live like secular monks and they just game all day and their parents bring them food? There's like a million of them. It's a problem. <laughs> but this is the problem when you have a, a little sexual desire. Uh, or if you would conceive of yourself as a complete whole, then you wouldn't go out. So God makes man and woman essentially, and it's an essential part of your identity, to be either a man or a woman. So that you would say, to be myself, I need to find myself. So in Genesis, we have the wonderful words when, when God finally makes, makes, uh, makes Eve, which as you know, because the whole point is so that Adam could discover her and so that God could make this judgment that man is not meant to be alone. But then Adam meets Eve and says, finally, this one, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Finally, he finds a companion that fits, that works, which is why men and women are the best companions uh, possible. I mean, the boys are, you know, the boys, you need the boys, you know. You need the boys. I'm sure the girls need the girls. The boys, yeah, the boys. But like with the woman, you know, finally. So God makes us like this to draw us into relationship with him through the relationship with the woman. Which is why here, when, when, when in the culture we live in today, if you were to reduce the other to just a body, or if you were to reduce your own desires to say, well, I, my heart will be able to be satisfied by something material in the world, then you make the violent thing. Then the violent thing happens. Then the people get married, and they get married, and what do they say? This person will fulfill me. This person makes me whole. And this is a lie. And this is why so many relationships end up in these huge disappointments. Because the other person thinks that the other will totally fulfill them. And they were never meant to be. It's not like Mini-Me and you know, Austin Powers. You know. Well, well, he got that from Jerry Maguire. You know, you complete me. You complete me. It sounds very nice. It's very sentimental. And it's a lie. <laughs> so the other cannot fulfill you. And you're not meant to be over the other. They're not meant to be power relationships. 
where there's manipulation. That's also not the ideal of a relationship. Which is why the ideal of a relationship is to be with the other as the other. So that you see yourself and you don't fuse yourself with the other and you don't dominate the other, but you accept the love of the other in the discovery of who you are. This is the wonderful thing. It's the wonderful thing in my own life. I knew. I knew. The first time I fell in love, I said, this is why I was born. This is why I was born, was to meet this woman, to fall in love with her. I didn't know why I was born before that. But within the relationship, within the encounter of love, we discover the truth of who we are. Because the truth of who we are is uh, beings made to enter into relationships of love. What's the greatest relationship of love? Uh, Friendship. Friendship. Because friendship is love given and love received. Love given, acknowledged, and returned. And this, uh, all what we know about this, um, gosh, there's so much that being said. The, the, the greatest, the most clear answer that, that, that allows me to say these things is Christ. This is why Christ comes and takes on a body, so that he would clearly communicate himself. So that he would literally speak our language. So he would come in and use the names that we gave to the world and use those names to communicate the ultimate truth about reality. Because who knows the ultimate truth about reality but the one that makes everything. And this is what it says in uh, the, the document from the Second Vatican Council, Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 22. So there's a lot in the paragraph, but just this. The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. Only when God reveals himself in the flesh is man revealed in the flesh. Does man discover who he is? Who am I? Who are you? For Adam, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father in his love, fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. You cannot know what you are made for before you meet Christ. It was unimaginable. The destiny we have was unimaginable until Christ comes and reveals it. Intuitions of it, yes. Ideas about it, even ideas about the resurrection. But when we talk about the resurrection, it's When Christ actually rises, it's something that shocks everybody because nobody could have expected it. It's the relationship of the supernatural. Filial adaptation. adaptation, Adoption. Filial adoption. Divine sonship and daughtership. That our destiny is to become gods. Not to dissolve into God. Which is a mistake that they make in the East when they want to say that You know, the ultimate thing is to just become one with God. If you become one with God, then you don't exist anymore. Congratulations. You fall into the black hole on the other side. There's nihilism on this side and there's pantheism on this side. And we can't fall into either. But God calls us to be united with himself as the other. Which is why we always remain other than God. Just like you and and all your relationships need to remain other than the other and not become absorbed. That's why you have to fight for where you're going to go out and have dinner. You see what I mean? When someone says, no, 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 whatever you want, whatever you want, no, no, let's just do what you want. It's not good. 
because it sort of eliminates the otherness. It takes away, it takes away the tension. True relationships must have, have tension within them. So you say, well, I want to go for this place. So you say, well, I want to go to this place. So like, let's, let's have a conversation. Let's go to this place tonight. Let's go to this place tomorrow. Something like this. Or go to a fusion restaurant. This would be wonderful. Much greater idea. Gaius Marius Victorinus, third century Roman orator and senator, says, when I encountered Christ, I discovered myself a man. He didn't have transgender problems. He discovered himself a man because only until you meet Christ do you discover what the heart was made for. And it's only once you discover what you're made for that you discover who you are. And this is why in the relationship with Christ, you never have to say goodbye to those you love. For example, this to me is the best thing. Because when I fall in love, I want to be with the person forever. And who can save that person forever? Do you remember that movie... Um, the never-ending story. It's like eight now, you know. The guy opens the book and he like imagines it. You remember the great enemy in the story is nihilism. It's the, the darkness, the black that comes and just sucks everything away. And you remember there's that giant, and there's a scene where the giant is there and he's and he's crying and he's looking at his hands. He says, These hands, these big, powerful hands, but they weren't able to keep my friend from being sucked into the void. I lost him. I let go of him. This is the great, this is the great cry of humanity in the awareness that we cannot save ourselves. That in fact, the more you grab onto somebody, the more they escape you. And the more they'll push you away because we're not meant to be grabbed. This is why any true love, any true relationship, any true possession is only possession in Christ. And so to love if you, if the more you love the person you love and the more you want them to live forever, the more you have to love Christ. You can't actually help it. You have the rebellion inside of you like we all do. But it's without Christ, everything turns to ash and dies. And there's just nothing. Any other proposal that I've heard has not been serious anyway. And is not a, a historical hope. And most people who start talking about, you know, living on in memories. Who wants to live on in memories? Am I a body in your memories? I don't care about memories. So we're moving into the last moments. Uh, a couple more things. In Philippians, we read that Jesus, uh, being God, did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave in the likeness of man. Jesus pours himself in the incarnation becomes man. And in this way, he says yes to the Father, takes that relationship with him, calls people together to himself in order to bring them all back in the flesh, back to the Father. So that God who moves out of himself and pours himself into being would be then poured back to the Father. And we get wrapped up into this back and forth of love, which is a relationship we can call friendship. Yes? Which, in order to have friendship, in order to have love, Essentially, you must have freedom. Without freedom, there is no... This is why I was just preaching about this Thursday. Why did not God make us simply in heaven already? Why live the drama of the world? Why not just put us in heaven and make us happy? 
Because first, this goes back to the work, God wants us to participate in his creation, to participate in the work of salvation. And he wanted our happiness to truly be our happiness. And that would not be our happiness if it was forced on us. So God puts us in this world where we only came here because of a free decision of other people who chose to say yes to love, yes to life, and bore us into this world. We call it procreation because God won't create somebody without the cooperation of humanity itself, just like God won't become incarnate without the yes of the Blessed Virgin. And in this way, offers all of us this possibility of entering back into relationship with him, which is why this freedom and this otherness of God enters into a, a deep, deep mystery of what's going on at the center of reality itself all the time, which is something that at the bottom, this is this. The fact that we are different from God, this is what freedom is. Freedom is the capacity to be in relationship with another. Because if it's just one, there is no friendship. You can't have friendship with one. For friendship, you have to have another that isn't the same. And this is our doctrine of the Trinity. The Father and Jesus are both God. The difference in them is the fatherhood and the sonhood. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. Without that difference, you can't have a true relationship. And we are not God, but we are relationship with God, radical dependence upon Him. Which is why the truest, greatest thing a person can do, and this is connected with what we said earlier, is to pray. Is to pray. Because if you are aware, even a little bit, about who you are, and the fact that you did not decide to be born, that you do not sustain reality, that you cannot save yourself with your own, own hands, the only thing there is to do is to pray, which is, begging for what, which is begging for what God has already given us, which is a share in His divine life, a share in being itself. And then from there we talk about the sacraments and the life of the church and the continued incarnation, which again, like I said, there was no more time. And there we got to 831. How about that? At this point, we should say a prayer and allow... People to leave if they want. It wouldn't be rude if people left while there's. I don't I just don't want to like leave you without any chance to ask a question. I'm sure there's questions, but I know there's a lot of and to think about. I think I'm going to come back again. That was a D. That was a D. I never convinced anybody of anything. <laughs>